speak to you again. Do you know when we last spoke? Uh, oh, it's a while ago, isn't it? I couldn't tell you exactly. A year. A year ago. Is it a year, is it? Even wow. before I started work on my book, um, for which, inadvertently, thank you, because by speaking to George, I got a lot of context for the early days of the Youth Cup. I'm rather perturbed, Jeff Gording, because your football team are on a two-game run without winning. It's catastrophic, isn't it? Do you know, that there's something with the place. <laughs> we haven't recruited. There's something rotten at this club. It's terrible. There was I know. A... Klopp's took us as far as he can, though, to be honest. Really? I think he should just do the decent <laughs> thing and give it Stevie Gerrard. There is no... This yeah, is a nonsensical absolutely. season. Klopp knows that this season will be disrupted by this World Cup. So, fortunately, Mo Salah isn't going to, or sadly, isn't going to Qatar. What if Salah becomes like a FIFA ambassador this year instead? Mm, I mean, it's possible, isn't it? Because FIFA really, they have so many, so much cash reserves and they, they really want the eyeballs on this tournament. Will you be watching it? To be honest, probably not an awful lot, if, I, if I'm completely honest. I don't tend to... Uh get caught up in, in international football. Um, it doesn't really resonate with me. I can't I can't make myself passionate about it. I mean, if it's on and there's no other competing, uh, you know, no one else in the house competing for the remote control, uh, I'll watch it because it's football. Yeah. But I don't really get too caught up in, in international football. Uh, I've just had a message probably from... probably wasn't what no. you wanted to hear. No, no, no. But, I've, I've <laughs> just got a message from Stephen Scragg, uh, who wants to plug his books. Um, but Stephen is is very much someone uh, who who will pay a little attention to this World Cup. Um, but you are part of the these Football Times team. We know that because you did. We had you in a year ago. Stephen's a, a big Liverpool supporter, but loves football. Whereas I'm annoyingly to everyone outside of the Liverpool fan base. I'm purely a Liverpool supporter. I mean, I do watch football. I watch Premier League football. I watch club football. You know, my, my huge passion is Liverpool football, so I'm quite narrow-minded, I guess, in, in that good. respect. But Stephen's definitely, Stephen's definitely not if you, in the same ilk, really. Uh, He's a, a hipster, hipster football writer who loves the obscure and the uh, anything about you know football and football history is, is his bag. Well, that is why you have, have written and are still writing pieces at This Is Anfield. Um, the, over the summer, you did a lot of pieces. I didn't read them all. Um, but I did read your obituary of the late David Moores, whom you call the last right. of his kind, a millionaire fan. Um, I didn't know the story about Dirk Count and David Moores. Yeah, so that was um, that, that deal was secured on the basis of a, a loan from the Moores family. And one of the things David Moores famously said was he wanted to do everything he could for Liverpool Football Club and to bring success to its supporters. Uh, but he couldn't do it at the risk of bankrupting his family. Which is why it was even more perturbing that he hadn't made the um, celebratory paraphernalia after the Champions League win. Because at half-time, even you as a Liverpool fan would have thought, well, there's no, we're not going to go and get any memorabilia tomorrow. So uh, that seems to be the moment, um, and I spoke to Phil McNulty and Jim White about their recent book about the rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester United. It does seem that Liverpool's problem, oddly given that, they dominated English football for two decades. By the time the Premier League came along, for some reason, they let themselves lag behind United. Well, it's paradoxical, really, because on the face of it, Rick Parry was part of yes. those negotiations, yeah. wasn't he? He was, he was someone who, who perhaps saw the writing on the wall and saw the opportunities that the Premier League presented 
and was a big advocate of it. You know, led to to an extent the, the move. But 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 at the club, I suppose there's a huge dichotomy at Liverpool. I remember a piece Chris Bascom wrote years ago now, where he, he essentially said, you know, for all Liverpool supporters and, and Liverpool's radical left wing image. Uh, they're actually quite conservative. And I think there's an element of truth in what he said there because we were kind of, as a fan base, almost schizophrenic about that whole thing because the club would be condemned for cashing in but at the same time criticised for for not keeping up with United and not being as savvy commercially as United. And, and almost we wanted it both ways, I think. I don't know, maybe you can. And I think maybe FSG now, to an extent, are looking at how can we make money but at the same time, whatever our values are seen to be, uh, they've obviously made some massive missteps and, and, and messed up a, uh, on a number of occasions. But maybe the internal optimist in me thinks that you know this, the new supporters board and the engagement since the Super League debacle shows that maybe finally they might be starting to line, which is a very difficult line to tread. Which is that you have to be commercially viable, but the club and it's particularly its fan base, and maybe more so its local fan base sees itself as socialist with the small s. Mm. The, the, the big news, and you wrote about this about nine months ago on This Is Anfield. I didn't realise it had been going on so long. I, I imagine you being a Red, you will know Joe Blot quite well. Is he going to yes. get his kind of yeah. scouse knighthood uh, in that everyone will <laughs> refer to him as Sir Joe? <laughs> Possibly, yeah. When Spirit of Shankly was first formed, they had a committee representative who was responsible for direct action. Spencer Shankly was very much formed in the fire of protest and uh, oppositionist approach to campaigning, uh, which was, of course, necessary because the main aim of Spencer Shankly was to achieve final ownership of the football club. Um, and they wanted Hicks and Gillette out. It was a very much Milton with a small M agenda mm. and, you know, real radical approach um, focused on direct action campaigning. And Joe by his own admission, would not have been elected as chair of the union and, and wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to thrive in that kind of arena, but acknowledges that, you know, that was necessary at the time and it was the right people for the right moment. And of course the union's evolved now and and, and it's more about with FSG in control, it's more about engagement and negotiation, very much more, you know, like trade unions do. It's about negotiation, engagement looking for solutions based as opposed to, you know, the way things were under Hicks and Gillette. So Joe doesn't really, you know, and this is he would say this himself, he doesn't really fit into that kind of radical campaign or mould. He's very passionate about stuff. He's got, you know, uh, issues that he's involved in outside of football, like uh, domestic violence and things like that. But uh, very well respected amongst the fan base, but not a kind of tub thumping, you know, firebrand uh, speaker. Which is, I just think, is very interesting the yeah. way the whole the whole thing's evolved. That's right, and it has evolved to such an extent that the announcement was made this week. Uh, we're talking on uh, August eighteenth, four days before Liverpool wallop Manchester United six nil. Um, the supporters <laughs> board, Spirit of Shankly, are on the supporters yes. board, and it's not just SOS; it's a whole umbrella of organisations including, uh, is it Cops Out? There's there's a disabled supporting Cops association. Cops uh, yes. LFC LGBT, yes. Um, Liverpool Disabled Supporters Association, Liverpool Women's Supporters Association, yeah. Spion Cop 1906, 
this is a really, you know, and there's an independent member on there as well. Uh, this is this is really inclusive. Uh, and as chair of the board, Joe's been very, very clear to say that, that part of his role is is to drive inclusivity. You know, one of the things about modern football, more so uh, than when I was a kid, is is the international nature of it, the global nature of it. Liverpool Football Club have a huge global fan base and you know, Joe, I know Joe is, is very keen to ensure that the board is seen to represent all of those people as well as very importantly representing the local fan base as well so uh, I think very exciting um, groundbreaking uh, goes goes further than, than I think any other clubs that's not to be elitist or, or to suggest that you know because um, I would love all football clubs to have the same model but you know, I think what it shows is that, you know, if you work hard at something, if you fight for it, if you engage, if you're positive, uh, it just shows what can be achieved. And uh, I think it's a huge step forward. Here, here. Although if you continue in the league drawing games, you're at the risk of relegation. Um, this is uh, it's very interesting what's happened at Liverpool because we knew Fabio Carvalho was going to come in because you tried to get him in January. Luis Diaz came in uh-huh. in January because, I don't know, Minamino was off and, you, and Origi was off and you needed to bed him in for six months. And now Nunez has come in. I don't want to do, go too much on what's happened recently. But I do want to ask, you'd have thought Virgil van Dijk would have, during pre-season, toughened him up or at least shown what a knobbish defender could have done with him. Because isn't this a failure on van Dijk's uh, and Konate's part, not readying him enough? for the mental aspect of this division? It's a really interesting question. Uh, I think all of us looking at his game, uh, well, I won't pretend to have studied his game in, in any great depth, but you know, looking at how he played in both fixtures against Liverpool and then once the interest became clear, looking at you know the way he played in for Benfica, you wouldn't have... I think, I, unless I missed something, I wouldn't have thought that that was part of his game, um, You know that sort of temperament issue. Perhaps it came as a shock to, to everyone um, at the club. He certainly doesn't seem like that type of guy. Um, you know, Clearly it was a red card in my view. Uh, he was wound up by the defender throughout the game and he, he had a moment of madness. Um, perhaps it was. Perhaps his teammates, perhaps Klopp, perhaps the coaching team didn't spot the potential for that and didn't kind of clue him in enough. But I think they will now. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that um, he won't make that mistake again. Well, he will be off in November, December because he plays next to Cavani, I imagine, for Uruguay. Uh-huh. Um, and the Nunez money, this was very interesting, and I'm sure you'll have noticed this, was raised by the sales of Sadio Mane, a club ledge, uh, Taka Minamino and Neko Williams. Uh-huh. So you've done what yeah. you've done before, and probably Harry Wilson from last season. So what you do brilliantly, and you don't use kind of a loan farm that Chelsea used to do, um, the recruitment is great, and this is a big test for the new... I can't remember who, what, what his name is, but the new Michael Edwards, the guy who stepped up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, yeah, you've caught me off guard there. Ah. His name escapes me. Um, Julian... Julian yes. Ward. Yes, Julian Ward, correct. Um, and so Liverpool... Our succession planning, even as they're succeeding. What interested me was that Steven Gerrard extended his deal with Aston Villa because Klopp extended his deal with Liverpool. 
So it may be that Steve Cooper returns. One of the things that interests me is Steve Cooper came through at Liverpool as a coach. Mm-hmm. But Liverpool are in a good place. There's not really any grumbling, is there? Milner is, is still there. Klopp is still there. You've got Pep Linders having putting his book out, um, unveiling all the secrets. Um, still a good time to be a Liverpool fanatic. I, 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 would, I would agree. One hundred percent. I don't. I'm starting to. I'm starting to realise that the, when when you look at Liverpool as a community, Liverpool Football Club as a community, there's almost two communities. So there's a community that exists online in social media, and there's the community that you you meet in person on away days or going to European Cup matches or at the ground or in the pub. Um, and they're almost chalk and cheese. Uh, by and large, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's plenty of moaners at, at the match, as there always has been. I mean, I remember Ronnie Whelan in particular coming in for unbelievable stick when I was a young lad on the cop from certain certain sections, which I could never understand. That That's always been part of, of football, that people have whipping boys and they have things that bother them and they moan about them. Uh, but by and large, the kind of the, the people you meet in person, the people who go to the match, the people who, you know, they tend to be very happy, and I would count myself as one of those. I'm very happy with the way things are going at Liverpool Football Club. I, I wrote, I predicted for this as Anfield. Uh, I let my head rule my heart and said we'd finish second this season, but I'd be happy with, you know, some silverware, hopefully the Champions League. But, you know, very happy with the way things are going. But then there's a section on social media who, who never seem to be happy. Uh, who seem to have lost the art of enjoying the game, and I wrote a piece this week about that. And it's kind of we. It's interesting because one of the big achievements Klopp made when he when he came in was he got us to shrug off the past. He got us to stop sort of lingering in past glory and wanting to repeat that. And he got us to live in the moments again. And I talked in an article about that moment where he. The players took a bow in front of the cop after drawing two-two against West Brom, and it was widely ridiculed. But I think that was that was him saying, "Look, we, we can enjoy the moments. You know, we need to get back to being happy about watching football." And I think he's done that. But I think all the success we've had in the last few years, paradoxically, means that we now kind of, you know, any a draw is seen as a catastrophe, um, and that is partly driven by Manchester City and their power their consistency and, and you know so we, we almost you know if you lose too many or draw too many games then it puts you out of contention but we stop being able to enjoy the game and enjoy the club and I, I just find that depressing really so yeah for me I would agree with you there's not much to grumble about there's not anything to grumble about really no you, uh, on you, and off the pitch you use the club this, are going great yeah you use this brilliant line which I will nick um, I've, <laughs> every, ever since I heard this joke told about two writers uh, looking up at a balcony to see a naked woman undress how can you tell which one is the diarist and which one is the absurdist poet? Well, that's easy. Samuel Pepys, Edward Lears. And every time I've told that joke in the last 15 years, I've said, that's not mine, that's by a comedian called Ben Verth. And, uh, and so you have to credit it. So I will be crediting you, Jeff Golding, uh, with this line about how buying football players and winning the transfer window, ugh, make it stop. Um, it's like swapping panini stickers. I don't know if you've nicked that off someone else, but that is true. That is so true and such a magnificent yeah. aperçu. Yeah, well, I, I, I will claim credit for that. Good. Well <laughs> um, yeah, well, it came to me when I was writing the piece, um, and I'm not conscious that anyone else, anyone else said it, but you can never be sure, can you? 
It's yeah, like, and yeah. I suppose for the modern generation, it's like going on on FIFA, isn't it? You know, uh, you know, PlayStation and buying players, and, and why can't the club just go and do that? Sell this player, buy that player, and of course, anyone who really understands football, I don't understand the commercial side of. I won't pretend to understand the commercial side of football uh, to any great depth, but I'm pretty sure it's not as easy as that. Um, and there's a whole load of factors that determine whether we can bring a player in, it's whether the manager wants them, it's whether the finances stack up, it's whether the player wants to leave, it's whether the selling club will sell the player, uh, it's whether the player you want to get rid of wants to go, you know, it's all those things, isn't it? But but there are there are people out there who, who, who see it as, a, as a, yeah. a game of, you know, swaps on the playground or, well, I, or I, FIFA. I read something this morning and it just stopped me and I thought, this is why I can't do elite football. After the World Cup, I'm going to find something, well, I'm going to write more songs, but... I think football at elite level, and this isn't just because Watford are no longer in the Premier League, although that's got something to do with it. Um, Bernardo Silva, who really wants to leave Man City, owned by Abu Dhabi, uh, is um, wanted by Paris Saint-Germain, owned by Qatar. And Saudi Arabia and Qatar um, are in this kind of entente discordiale. They really don't like each other. And effectively... One club is going to have to ask the nation's permission to go and negotiate with Abu Dhabi's owners and sign Bernardo Silva. God knows what happens if Newcastle get involved and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And that's not football anymore. That's kind of pawns. And that's why I can't watch Erling Haaland, because I know he's an Abu Dhabi pawn, much the same way as Lionel Messi is owned by Qatar and they're going to parade him when Argentina inevitably win the World Cup in Qatar this winter. It's just awful, which is why it's so nice to see Liverpool actually treating their players well. We've had Harvey Elliott got a start. Um, did he start against Fulham? Did he play? Uh, yes. Yeah, interesting. Yes. Yeah, it was Cavallio who came on as a sub. Yeah. But yeah, Elliott started. That's good. And what has happened? But and the thing about that is that, that he's in on merit, you see. And I think that, that's the thing about, I agree with you about football generally, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to to find the romance in the game more broadly. You know, the thing about Klopp is that the, it, it is very much, if you're good enough, you're going to get you're going to get a go, you're going to get a chance. And of course, they've merged the academy in the first team at Kirby. And so, of course, Klopp and Linders are seeing these players on a daily basis, mm. whereas they would have been geographically separated, Melwood and Kirby previously. Right. So, so, yeah, it's... So, so it's not, it's not all romance uh, at Liverpool with the youngsters coming through. It's very much about these players are good enough, and we don't want to block them off. They might not be quite there yet. They might not be quite the finished product, but they can get there. Which is and why that's another factor in Klopp's thinking about transfers is I don't want to bring this player in because it will stop this player's development. Yeah, which is why Tyler Morton has gone down the Harvey Elliott route and he's taken Elliott's place in that team. And is at Blackburn yeah. now, which I thought was very interesting to note. Ben Davis has served his purpose. He's gone out. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. Basically, Andy Robertson's got a mate in the dressing room. I think Calvin Ramsey had heard Robertson go on and on and on and on and on so much yeah. that he just let. And also, he's frighteningly young. So, is could that indicate Trent Alexander-Arnold moving to become Milner's replacement, or do you think the assists from out wide means that Alexander-Arnold is going to stay? as the starting right back. I can I can understand why people would ask that question. I can understand and I can understand why people you know speculate that he could he could do a job in midfield. I, 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 actually he can he could probably play anywhere to be honest with you. He's really 
top quality footballer, but Klopp's been fairly fairly adamant on that whenever he's been you know, whenever he's been asked, is you know, he's the best right back in world football, why would you play him anywhere else? You look at his productivity at the moment, his assists, the job he does for Liverpool, I, yeah, I just don't see why you would why you would do that. And that's not to say I don't think he'd do a job. But he's such a specialist now in that position. I think it would, t- it would mean that we'd have to, you know, we'd be moving away from an approach that we've had for the last few years, and uh, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. I wonder, and I didn't ask Jim and Phil this, if the Manchester United and Liverpool women's team will have a rivalry this season. Um, even though it's especially interesting that Nikita Paris, who is a scouser, is now playing for Manchester United. So, are you going to go to that game? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've I've made a few sort of uh, pledges at the start of this season. One of them is that I'm going to get to women's football, and I'm going to take my daughters with me. The other is that I'm going to watch some non-league football, so some great non-league football teams in the in the area. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I haven't thought through which games I'm going to go, but I would absolutely be willing to go to. Liverpool women's team versus Man United team. Whether the rivalry will have developed to that point, I, I don't know. If I'm honest, I'm certainly in that those who turn up and, and watch it, the rivalry will be there. The, the rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester goes beyond the football. Yeah, football's a big part of it, but um, I think there's a huge rivalry, strangely, between the two cities, which are very, very similar socially and. Politically. That's what I discovered in this book, Red on Red. And we're talking in advance, as I said, of uh, Liverpool beating Manchester United 8-0. Just have a go at De Gea. <laughs> He'll flap at his own ghost at this rate. Um, are you going to Old Trafford? No, unfortunately I won't be at the game on Monday, no. Sadly. That's all right. I, I I'll imagine watching that, it from my armchair. I imagine Gary and Cara will be very neutral Uh, And very stoic about that game. And then you've got two home games, Bournemouth and Saudi Arabia United. And then it is a trip across Stanley Park for the Abel Xavier Derby. Um, I didn't realise this. Um, This is um, a fixture that has been held for 60 consecutive years. It's one of the most garlanded fixtures in English football because these teams are so close. There was a book, Stanley Park Story, that came out in hardback four years ago. Things have happened since... So there's a new paperback issue. Was this your idea or um, the uh, Paul and Jane's idea to repackage it? Well, this was this, this was my proposal, really, and it wasn't that I wanted. I felt I needed to completely rewrite the story or make huge changes to the story, but really to acknowledge a couple of things. One, one that what's gone on in the meantime since since the last book was written. But also, um, I've, I've written a new a new afterword, really, which is it's a bit like shouting into a void, but is, is an appeal to the respective fan bases of, of Liverpool and Everton, really. I think one of the things that I, I saw Stanley Park's story uh, as an attempt to show this generation of Liverpool and Everton supporters what we once were, because we're no longer the friendly derby, in my opinion. We're no longer the same. It's not the same rivalry anymore. Um, and what I wanted to do was to kind of be more explicit about that and, and make the point that the rivalry, I think, has now become quite toxic and, and, and it, it breaks my heart because mm. I grew up with a very different rivalry between Liverpool and Everton. And don't get me wrong, I, I, you know, I would never suggest it was a hippie love-in and we all sang Kumbaya and banged our tambourines. There was, there was lots of needle in the derby and people falling out over results and things like that but it was never like it is now 
Uh, and so really what I wanted to do was, was kind of be more explicit, you know, about the fact that I think we're losing something in the city, that something that was quite special. And I think one of the things I knew when I was growing up, even, even as a very young kid, it used to fascinate me how camera crews used to focus in during the derby on reds and blues sitting next to each other and and it made me realise even then that that that's special and and they must know it's special and it must not be like that anywhere else Mm -hmm. Um, and I loved it and and I think we're losing it I think there's lots of factors behind it and it's not I'm not saying it's Everton fans fault or Liverpool fans fault it's multifactorial but it's depressing Um, and I know it'll never go back to that but it would be great if we could just stop the march into toxicity really wouldn't it have been funny if Divock Origi had signed for Everton at the end of his contract? I was listening uh, to the celebrations, well, the commiserations, because Liverpool hadn't won the league, uh, but the farewell to Mane and Origi, and I'm sure there's one more in there somewhere, Vinaldum, or was that last year? I can never remember, I don't care. That was before, yeah. wasn't it? Um, because no player has moved between the clubs since Abel Xavier, the funny bearded man uh, for 20 years. <laughs> Nicky Barmby, obviously from Hull, wasn't as wedded to uh, that club. Peter Beardsley moved there in 87. So in 87, when, or was it 91? When Sunes, it was when Sunes came in, wasn't it? 91. Sunes came in, told Beardsley to go. Everton paid three quarters of a million pounds. Beardsley's a northeasterner, but didn't he, he won trophies with Liverpool. Why was he allowed to go to Everton at, the, at that time? I don't really believe it was... I mean, certainly my, from my point of view, my recollection of it, I, it, it wasn't such a huge issue for a Liverpool player to go to Everton and vice versa back in the 80s. I don't know there hadn't been too many who'd done it directly. I mean, David Johnson had played for both mm-hmm. clubs, hadn't he, and scored in both derbies. Actually, he'd scored for Everton against Liverpool and Liverpool against Everton. Steve McMahon had famously played for Everton, although he came to us via Villa, I, I think. I, I don't think it was that massive an issue to us. Um, and therefore, I guess, it, you know, the two clubs' boards would have been quite quite close together at the time as well. And I, I don't think it was a problem. Um, it would be now. And it certainly was when Barnby joined us. I remember the uproar on, on the other side of the park when Barnby joined us and they... Uh, the abuse he got when he scored in the derby, but that's just one element of how things have changed between mm. the two clubs. I think. I think there was all you know, the, the certain players in the history of the club you wouldn't have wanted to see go to Everton. So you wouldn't have wanted to see Dalglish go. And famously, there was uproar when there was speculation that Elisha Scott, in the end of the twenties or the early thirties, was was going to be sold to Everton. But I think generally there wasn't the kind of hatred between the two clubs that would have made it impossible in the way that you know. Man United would never sell to Liverpool and, and directly and vice versa. Mm. Uh, so that's my my interpretation of it, really, without, in all honesty, having an awful lot of insight into the into the discussions between the two clubs. Naturally. Uh, since the publication of the original hardback, Liverpool have won the Premier League. Very hard to forget that, um, because <laughs> <laughs> um, Divock Origi scored that goal after uh, Jermaine, Pick- uh, Jermaine Pickford, Jordan Pickford, uh, gave the assist. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you, Jeff Golding, you were at, I imagine, this December 2019 win at Anfield, 5-2. Were you there? The, the Derby, yes, yep. I was there. Yep. Of the starting 11, how many players are still at the club? Right, OK, so there was. I remember there was a little bit of muttering uh, about the starting 11, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. In that, uh, Klopp rested players, didn't he? 
So, well, Origi's not there. Shakiri's not there. Wijnaldum's not there. Mm-hmm. Alisson, did he start? Um, no, he didn't. It was Adrian. Uh, oh, right, OK. So he's still... So Adrian's still here. Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, the old man. So Milner. Milner. So Adrian Milner. I'm guessing Van Dyke. Van Dyke was there. And the two fullbacks. So the, yeah. the entire front three... Uh, of that starting lineup are not there. Obviously, six of the seven subs are still at the club, um, and also we had the Pickford incident. And I was listening to this, and it was really sad. Van Dyke being carried off injured because he seems just like a nice gentleman and a true ambassador for Liverpool. Another adopted red. Um, I was talking to a Union Berlin fan, and they they call people football gods, even if they've been there for two minutes. But Van Dyke really is a football god. Um, and then uh, the 4-1 win at Goodison in December 2021 and the 2-0 victory at Anfield in April, which went some way towards keeping it exciting at the end of last season. So all of these are added in, but can you tell the listener what the book entails? Because it isn't just factoids and it isn't just memoir. Uh, no, so um, I think, I, I mean, I know uh, Paul at Pitch... Has, has told me this is that there was probably a, a degree of scepticism when I when I pitched the book to them because it's actually a, it's a novel it's a fictional story and the, it's sort of set against the backdrop of sixty years of the Merseyside derby so there are historically accurate you know games in there there's there's facts in there but essentially it's a, it's a novel and it's a story about two families it's a story about a Liverpool family and a and an Everton family and two two friends in particular, Tommy and Jimmy, who who have been friends right from you know right from uh, the early sixties, and have kind of their lives mirror in more ways than one uh, the history of the Merseyside derby. So you know the families go through you know numerous challenges and numerous crises, and you know their friendship is tested along the way. So it's very much the story of. A human story. It's very much the story of Liverpool people and the character of Liverpool people, and the challenges that they've had to face over that period, and and sort of the the setting it up as as a kind of red versus blue is almost a way of of you know portraying the character of the city and the character of its people. So yeah, so I was very very proud of it uh, to be honest with you because it's I mean one of the things I always say is that actually I'm. I'm a frustrated fiction writer, really. I, I love writing about football. I love writing about the local football club, but I'm really comfortable writing stories and writing about people. Uh, and this is kind of my first first novel, if you like. So, yeah, it's a film. It's a it's a book about 60 years of Merseyside football history, but uh, predominantly the tale of two Merseyside families. I'm just conscious because last time we spoke in the middle of 2021, we didn't really talk about it, and I hadn't read the book. So I will definitely get this new paperback edition published on September the 12th, uh, which is a couple of match days after the Merseyside derby um, and uh, all the other books. So there's a second issue of The Lost Shankly Boy. Uh, Last time we spoke, George was getting over a long hospital stay. Has he been fitter and healthier over the last year? Do you see him at Anfield? Yeah, George is back to his old self now. He went through an incredibly tough time. Him and his family, to be honest with you. It, it almost seemed like the book was published and then his world fell off a cliff edge. Uh, he, he found out he had to go in for 
major heart surgery. He then developed pneumonia in critical care. And he's, he's talked about all this this publicly. As he said himself, um, the doctors in the critical care department had to have a very difficult conversation with him and his family about whether he was going to make it or not. Um, and so just, I mean, just as he has done his whole life, whenever an obstacle's been thrown in his way, he's somehow found found a way to get over it. And he's bounced back magnificently. And he's, he's got a number of big events coming up where he'll be talking about his life, um, talking about, about the book and raising money for charity, which is one of the big oh. things that drives him right now. So he's very much uh, all about raising money for lymphoma, which... His wife, Carol, has, has battled with in the past. So, you know, his whole life is dedicated to his family and, and giving back. Um, and kind of, you know, he's very open about saying, and we cover it in the book, that really is, is much of his philosophy he, he learned from Shankly as a young 15-year-old boy. His father had tragically died. The other male figure in his life, his grandfather had died. Uh, and really, Shankly became his father for, for five years at Liverpool and you know, was a huge impact on his on his attitude, his outlook to life, his his values, and he's lived them his whole life. And it's no surprise to me that you know you can't knock him down. He gets back up again, and he just keeps going. I'm sorry, and do send him my absolute best. I can't remember if I sent him I a book. Do. I should have done. George Scott's story is uh, told as part of From Kids to Champions, which is my book about the Youth Cup, which I'm not here to promote. It's just there. Uh, Jeff's Jeff Golding has written many more brilliant books and. The uh, three books in one, fact, fiction and memoir, Stanley Park story is out in paperback. Uh, is there another book being written? Um, well, I've, I've kind of got a number of projects on the, on the sort of bubbling away, really. What happened after Untouchables was published um, last year was that was a huge undertaking. And I kind of took a break after that. Yeah. And as I suspected, taking a break means it's very easy to get you know, it's very difficult to get back on the horse, as it were. Um, so really, I'm at the point of deciding, you know, which which, which way to go next, really, with, with the various projects that have uh, that have been presented to me. Um, one of them is is looking at uh, Tommy Lawrence's story. Oh, yes. Uh, Tommy Lawrence. Yeah, I'd love to learn about goalkeeper. that. Goalkeeper, yeah. Yeah. Um, another one is, is, is um, Mark Platt, who's a producer at LFC TV. He and Gary Shaw wrote uh, a book about the 1947 title, Liverpool title-winning season. It was the first season back after World War II. And so we, we've been talking a lot about the manager of Liverpool at that time, was George Kay, and his, his story, which has not really been explored in, in any great depth. And, of course, that was the motivation for writing about the untouchables because it hadn't really been dealt with. Um, and so George, I think, is the next kind of logical place to go and so yeah so, so, so Tommy Lawrence's book and um, the, the idea of doing something about George Kay uh, really really appeals and, and I'll probably probably end up doing both it's just about time and, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and lining up our, our, our diaries and so on well talking about diaries because there's this World Cup that no one cares about it means that during <laughs> the winter you'll get to see a lot of non-league football I'm in the middle of this novel about a team in the league below the league below the football league and they're owned by a publican and the manager is a fan who got the job wow. by sending a, a putting up an online video and just saying please hire me mr chairman i'm currently working towards the denouement of that i think what i've tried to do with this football book is novelize my feelings about masculinity fandom and everything else so to finish okay, this yeah. chat being a fan 
nowadays, you do say in this brilliant piece, it really doesn't seem fun. Do people actually enjoy it? So is there anything in non-league that you think is more enjoyable than, I don't know, seeing Liverpool win a Champions League? I would have to say seeing Liverpool win the Champions League for me is the the pinnacle. I would still argue seeing Liverpool win the Champions League is better than seeing Liverpool win anything, win the Premier League even. But I do definitely, and I'm becoming increasingly of the view, that there is a lot of joy to be had in watching non-league football because you remove a lot of the trappings of Premier League football and modern football that many of us of our age, well, I'm, I'm of my age, I've grown to dislike, really. And it's really about the football and it's about survival, but not just survival of the team, but survival of the club. And it's about dealing with massively different challenges than Premier League teams have to deal with. And there's none of the kind of entitlement, or at least I perceive it that way. I've been to a few games... And there's none of that entitlement, really. It's it's more about you know the game, and it's more about you know the love of the game. Uh, and I think I think Premier League football in particular is is it's being dragged away from that kind of ethos, really. And it's more about uh, you hear supporters of, of Liverpool, but supporters of other clubs as well, talking about you know a team of our stature should be signing this type of player, and we should be competing at this level. And uh, and it really frustrates me. Um, and it's it's become very artificial, um, and so there is a part of me that would like to go back to you know back back to the kind of roots of the game, which is the, which is the non-league football, isn't it? Um, yeah. I don't know whether you might say I'm romanticising that because I'm not as in tune with there is... that culture. You will be, but it feels that way to me. No, well, this is my difficulty because to to go back full circle to where we started, um, the great yeah. Joe Blot. He seems to have a kind of non-league mind in a very much elite league world. And that is what fascinates me about Liverpool. Because, yes, they have so many fans in Africa, East Asia, Australasia, South America, North America, of course. The, the nature of Liverpool as this community, which was so hit, you don't need me to tell you by whom and when. And yet the community aspect, yes, you have the online, he said, he said, he said, why we should club at our level, Klopp's taking us as far as we can go. But I envy the Liverpool community because you get that kind of community. I've seen it at Dulwich Hamlet and at Wealdstone and at Boreham Wood, Barnet to an extent, and certainly in the women's game. Very tight-knit place. And one of the themes of my book is just assembling, and this isn't new, and it's quite hackneyed actually, but assembling to do something, many people, one event. And whenever Liverpool play at Anfield, as you'll do um, before this chat goes up, 65, 70,000 people will go to what is a church and sing You'll Never Walk Alone and see Andy Robertson run around a bit and uh, without Nunez. So I guess we'll see Jota if he's not injured. Um, and it's, it's brilliant. Being a Liverpool fan is one of the best things you can experience outside of religion, I think. Yeah, I've, I've, I think what you've, the points you've made there are really, really interesting. You make those points about Liverpool, the city, not just Liverpool, the community and fan base. Liverpool Football Club, the community. Yeah, I think football for, for many people in Liverpool, certainly for me, doesn't really have any religious persuasion at all. Football probably fills that role in my life. Uh, Liverpool fill that role in my life, the community. It's about something bigger than me, not being part of a, a community. It's about 
have, it's the only thing you, you, in my life where I, I indulge in superstition. It's the only thing in my life where I, I, I think magically, uh, you know, I'm quite sceptical about those type of things and other aspects of life. Um, so, yeah, football is like that. And I think you're right about Liverpool football in the sense that it is a global club, but certainly on Merseyside at least. And I think probably one of the things that attracts fans from around the world to Liverpool Football Club is this this sense that it's it's a small, tightly-knit community, although it's huge. I know that sounds paradoxical. And but we've always said that about Liverpool, the city. We've always said it's a, it's a city with a village mentality. And growing up, that's how it felt to me. You know, it was a city with big aspirations, always think, you know, above its thinking, above its station. But everyone knew what everyone was up to. The likes of Joe and fans that support food banks and Ian Byrne and people like that, you know, they are products of that. They're products of that, that ethos, that feeling that actually this is this is one community and we might be separated along football lines or even religious lines occasionally, but we're a community and we come together and we stick together. And I think, yeah, I think being a Liverpool supporter is about more than the football. Yeah. And, and I think I made a comment on Twitter when I'd been to Paris and came back and there was a you know huge fan zone, um, 60,000 people in the fan zone. And I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast, but they were singing uh, songs about the Tories. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just thought at this point, the club is a movement. You know, it's a movement. It's about politics. It's about music. It's about community. And it's about football It's as well. older than the Labour Party, don't forget. A couple of years older than it the is. Labour Party. It is 1892, and, and it is about all those things. And, and, and in that sense, it's going back to the 60s, isn't it? You know, that feel in the 60s, which was about art, music, poetry, football, politics. You know, that was Liverpool in the 60s and um, there's been some grim times in between, but it, it, on the clock, it, it feels almost, you know, a little bit like coming full circle in that respect. Yeah, you might um, you might say the people of Liverpool are mentality monsters, perhaps. <laughs> and you are, you are a fine ambassador, and the girls as well, fine ambassadors for <sighs> it. I, I just hope, I don't like ending with pessimism, but... I'll do it through the veil of optimism, but Liverpool Football Club are going to be a great help for Liverpool Football Club supporters in this difficult year, year and a half, what with everything being more expensive. And so the multinational corporation, Liverpool FC, who are headquartered in London, don't forget. This is a very interesting time for football and it actually really does disgust me now. And it, it has for a while, but these wages and the transfer fees are in a completely different orbit. And thank God for Gary Neville. Actually, so here's where we'll finish. Gary Neville's got a book out the same week as yours. It's called The People's Game. A, will you be reading it? And B, do you know that he famously hates Scousers? Oh, I do know that. <laughs> um, I mean, well, he's one of those interesting characters, Gary Neville, that, you know, when he played for United, I detested him. But as a pundit, uh, you know, there's times when I disagree with him and I find him a bit irritating. But then there's all that's the case with lots of lots of pundits. But I actually quite respect him. And yes, I, I, I probably will read his book. Um, I've disagreed with him a number of times, particularly on his views about scousers. But I think some of that's performative. Now, yeah. probably wasn't when he was a younger man. No, um, but that'll be an interesting read. The, 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 the title is a bit of a juxtaposition, isn't it? The people's game. Um, quite provocative so yeah that sounds interesting as does yours I must say oh bless you yeah uh, it's st- the title is still just Moz Winter because it's about him 
The guy's name is Morrissey, so you know exactly what age he is. I can happily watch a game, but knowing that Bernardo Silva, and this is a disgrace, Bernardo Silva's transfer will involve the highest echelons of two petrochemical states. Uh, it's, yeah. not, it's not the ball is round. It's, it's not that anymore. Uh, but no. there are two types of football. The one that you've written about in Stanley Park's story, which at least um, reminds us that football is a game full of community and masculinity and hope and, and then money. Do you have a, a routine before these home games coming up? A ru- my routine, my match routine? Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's quite embarrassing, really, because it is, as I say, the one area of my life where I allow superstitious thoughts and superstitious thinking to invade. Uh, so I'll drink out the same mug in the morning when I get up and uh, have to go to the same pub. Uh, my friends and I have this pack that we can change pubs at the end of the season, but not mid-season. Um, so we have to go to the same pub. That's because when under the Brendan Rodgers uh, reign, we were responsible for Liverpool, not Steven Gerrard. We were responsible for Liverpool mm-hmm. uh, not winning the league that season because we changed pubs uh, before the Chelsea game. So I have to apologise to all Liverpool fans for that. And Steven Gerrard, I'm sure, is delighted to know it wasn't his fault. So I have to walk around the ground. So I have to do a, a circuit of the ground before I go to the pub. And my wife, for my um, 50th birthday, bought me a stone at Anfield. So the club was selling stones uh, behind the main stand. Yeah. So I have, to go and, I have to go and look at my stone, then look at the Hillsborough Memorial, then look at the Shankly statue. <laughs> and then I go to the pub and have a beer. Well, it's worked. It's worked, because Liverpool have hardly uh, lost in the last four years. It's worked the last few years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like the library! Just like the library!